Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Today's episode is brought to you by The Road of Shadows, a mystery and suspense audio drama about a man who finds himself on the run in a small town in the mountains, pursued by mysterious creatures that only he can see. This is a highly immersive experience with an emphasis on mood and atmosphere. Feel yourself transported back to 1984 through music and sound that will take you to the streets of a small town deep in the mountains surrounded by mystery. You can learn more about The Road of Shadows at theroadofshadows.com. Find and listen to The Road of Shadows anywhere you listen to podcasts. Our thanks to The Road of Shadows for their support. One of the things that I really love about audio storytelling is the way in which you get to play with what is quote-unquote seen and unseen in different ways than you do in a visual storytelling space that your writers and your sound designer get to collaborate in this really interesting way to decide what is present and what's not. So first, I want to just remind the audience of some basics. So just to remind everybody that the design of Fenwood House when it was first designed was designed by Ryan Sheely. And when Ryan built it, he actually designed a walkthrough blueprint of the house uh, where everyone sort of got to follow along a moving dot as though they were walking through the house and hearing all of the different creaks and the swings of the doors and the rattle of the radiator and the windows and the everything. And everything is very precisely laid out so that you know where in the house you are based on the quality of the sound or which sound it is and things like that. And I feel like I should jump in here and say that's a thing that we created for our internal team. So like, dear listener, if you're hearing this and going... Wait, I missed it? You didn't. It's not, we have not released it publicly. No. (laughs) It's an internal thing for the team. This is like how they um, built the design of the house because the house is very clearly its own character. Another very common thing in the Gothic, right? We're talking about landscape, the spirit of place, and the spirit of place necessarily means that place has its own character and its own personality, and it is its own thing, Um, which is very clear of Fenwood House, especially in season three. Um... Jeez, okay. <laughs> so that's one thing I just wanted to remind everyone of like how this design came about and the fact that you can track the different sounds in the show, in the podcast, and see everyone using the same sounds in the same places. And so that way you can track where people are in the house and, you know, where sometimes where they're not in the house. Um, it's fine. I just want to also remind everyone that this is coming out post-season four. Uh, this is a highly spoilery episode because we're working here not just to dig into theme but we also I also want to like work with Eleanor and Jeffrey about surfacing observations so that you can like go back and reflect on these things uh and so spoilers 
definite spoilers for all the way through season three and through some of possibly also season four. So just fair warning for everybody. <laughs> there be dragons here. There be dragons here. But like fun dragons. <laughs> you know, fun dragons. All dragons are fun dragons. Yeah, <laughs> until you start talking to them and they're like, am I a ghost? And then you're like, what? You're a dragon. <laughs> exactly. It's fine. That, that's how this conversation is going to go. It's going to be great. Yeah. The, welcome to my terrible unwell jokes. You will have no <laughs> idea how many fucking puns I wrote into these questions. Get ready. So I thought that we would open by talking about some of our favorite gothic horror media to get a sense of where you two are coming from in terms of things like inspiration or themes that you like and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I will confess the number of times that I have referenced House of Leaves in my notes is <laughs> too many. Well, that's great because that's going to work great for Jeffrey and I'll have no idea what you're talking about. Perfect. Yeah. Jeffrey yeah. and I, I feel like have very different influences. And I, I like to pretend that that's a, an asset. It is an asset. But it does mean that sometimes we talk about stuff and I'm just like, I don't, that doesn't mean anything. Yeah. <laughs> you have to explain it. I think it's definitely an asset. We maybe pretend like it was on purpose. Yeah. 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 That's a better way to put that. It wasn't on purpose. <laughs> yeah. Jeffrey, you want to go first? Yeah. So in terms of gothic storytelling... I am a huge fan of a lot of Del Toro's films. Yeah. Both his like bigger, splashier, not gothic-y ones, but also like um, you know, the orphanage. We we joke around the house that you know it's it's a Del Toro movie when uh it's about kids and the adults are no help whatsoever. <laughs> I but I feel like there is an interesting thing where Within those stories, um, ghosts are also not always evil or dangerous, and and I really like those. I find them weirdly comforting. So I think in general, I am a big fan of stories where the ghosts aren't the bad guys. The ghosts are um, environmental hazards, maybe, uh, but they are not evil. I also do love an evil ghost, but... <laughs> Look, bitches love a ghost, period. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, while I was doing undergrad, I actually directed a production of Jeffrey Hatcher's adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, which is a delightful piece of theater, at least as I remember it. I have not revisited it um, for a number of decades. Uh, but he takes that story and presents it with two actors, um, one actor playing the governess and the other playing every other character. I would watch that. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a really cool structure of a piece. And we ended up doing a lot of work you know, basically no set and creating everything with lighting, with really, you know, isolated spots and um, side lights that cast these weird shadows and lots of really sickly, you know, yellow lights that um, made everyone washed out and uncomfortable. Um, That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other one I want to talk about... Um, 
I love The Hound of the Baskervilles. Yes! I, I thought you were going to say Gravity Falls. Uh, okay. I wouldn't call that a, a gothic. Um, <laughs> I mean, why not? But okay, go ahead. You, you. <laughs> I don't know. Actually, Ellie, do you want to give us like, uh, I, because I feel like y- you can say this more intelligently, like a, a a quick definition of the gothic for the listener and for us so that we Absolutely. Have- <laughs> what, are you going to tell me that Gravity Falls is not a gothic? Because I'm going to have an argument about that. All right. We'll all do right. that. Maybe we'll do that offline. Uh, no, we can do it here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, whatever. That's what this is for, right? So the gothic is, in fiction, it is a genre that developed as a response to things like the effects of Manifest Destiny, the older families starting to die out, um, the fear of intermingling, i.e. racism, ableism, all of those wonderful things, and and decay and disease. So those are really big themes in the Gothic. So the, the Gothic loves... Decay and disease and talking about how those things are reflected between the environment and the spirit of place and also family and inside of ourselves Um, because of the roots of the Gothic in ableism and racism and all of these things. There's also this fear of the wilderness of the frontier and how the wilderness is actually inside of us in our brains. And it is genetic. It is inherited. It is hereditary. And you cannot escape it. And it is the, about the dread of these things that are coming for you, that are coming for your family. And you cannot escape them. And they are always right around the corner, even if you can't see them. <laughs> That's the basics. Um, but if we wanted to talk for a moment, because it will come up a bit later in the interview... There's some offshoots of the gothic, right, that have focused on different things. And if you've ever watched True Detective, that means you've experienced what's called Southern Gothic. Mm -hmm. And Southern Gothic, the way that it distinguishes itself from the more umbrella terms, um, themes that distinguish it are, in particular, alienation, transgressive thoughts and impulses, and in particular, the tensions around racism and sexism and the patriarchy and things like this. And so, of course, if you've ever seen True Detective, which it's very like hyper focus on toxic masculinity and all of its effects (laughs) on uh, the decay of the family unit and things like that. And the decay of the minds, corruption, right? Season two, all of these things. You know, I I wonder if Southern Gothic would also, you know, include something like morning becomes Electra by Eugene O'Neill, obviously a, an adaptation of the Electra um, from either Sophocles or Euripides. They both wrote Electras. Yeah. Yeah, they did. They both wrote Electras. Ooh, that's rusty. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-oh. I think it's really interesting, this thing you're saying about Gothic being really, really rooted in, I don't know, I feel like I'm going to pull out from what you said, like this triangulation between like, a response to change or decay in society, uh, which is, you know, like on my my mental map is threaded to like race and class and society change and things like that. But that it's also deeply, deeply rooted in the way that those stories map onto place and a landscape and the sort of like external internal relationship of like the landscape and the people and the like internal emotional experience of the people and like feeling trapped in, on all of those layers and the fear that comes from all of that. 
because I was sitting here as Jeffrey was talking and I was thinking, I was like, okay, what are my gothic influences? And I want to tell you, I, I think the two things I want to talk about are Jane Eyre and Deep Space Nine. Hmm. You ready? I'm going to argue you're that- You're not, you're not <laughs> wrong, I guess. I'm gonna- I'm going to argue that Deep Space Nine has gothic elements. Um, it absolutely does. Yeah. And and that that show... Okay, I'm going to start with Jane Eyre and then talk about Deep Space Nine. But I feel like I was trying to think about what, what, were, what were kind of like anchor points for me walking into this story. Because I, I'm not a horror aficionado. Um, there are definitely other people on our team who really are. And I walked into this being like, is it okay for me to lead a like a scary story project when I hate horror movies? Like, is that allowed? <laughs> um, here we go. Let's see. Um, <laughs> and so for me, Jane Eyre was a really big reference point. Jane Eyre is a book that I was, I, I will go so far as to say obsessed with as a teenager. Um, I... I'm very dyslexic. And so as a as a teen did most like d- before, you know, audiobooks was a thing that was like very, very common, did most of my reading on books on tape. And my family only owned two physical books on tape. The other ones like came from the library or whatever. And one of them was Jane Eyre. Mm. My mom bought me my own copy of Jane Eyre on physical cassette tapes for my birthday <laughs> one year. And I probably read Jane Eyre a hundred times easily in high school. Easily. And it's a story that I go back to over and over and over again, even in adulthood. And I think that is a story that is very gothic. It's very traditionally gothic in the in all of those ways that you talked about, Ellie, right? Like, it's one of my favorite motifs in it is the way that like the weather and the landscape deeply reflects the emotional environment of the characters. And so like the characters have a big fight and then you get a thunderstorm that like destroys the favorite tree in the yard, you know, things like that. And also that is a, that is a story that is um, kind of moralistic. Mm. (laughs) And as a teen, when I read it, that was a thing I really loved about it. I was really drawn to the element of that story that was um, about how Jane has a set of values and she lives by them even when they are hard or even like life destroying. Um, As an adult, I have a lot much, I have much more complicated opinions about that um, in the context of that story. But like, particularly as like a 17 year old, I found that very attractive and very like, like affecting. Um, But I think like what, what has really stuck with me and what I still think is really relevant is this idea that your storytelling gets to say something about the kind of person you want to be in the world and like the kind of world you want to live in. And so like, as much as I'm sort of like, I use that word moralistic, like with, with the good and the bad implications about Jane Eyre, but like, but like I took away from that and how much I loved that book, this thing of like, yeah, your stories are, are allowed to be about what you think is right. 
And I think that's a big, that's a huge influence on me. Okay, so now Deep Space Nine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I think Deep Space Nine totally plays with all of these themes. That it is a, that it is a story that is like deeply rooted in place, which is one of the things that makes it really different than all the other Star Treks, right? That it's like in this one, they stay in this one place for the most part. It is about this, like, it it pulls very much at this fear of, like, a dramatically changing society and, like, who gets to have power and who gets to be in charge and the fear that comes with that on all sides, like, both the winners and the losers. And there's this whole element of the story around, like... I find really interesting in Deep Space Nine the the themes about like fate and what is destined to happen, which feels very gothic to me. This idea that like it is. Yeah, that like you can't escape your destiny. Right. Mm-hmm. And that Captain Sisko spends most of whatever the like freaking eight seasons trying to escape this destiny that he's been put on. That he's like, I am an American who believes in self, you know, manifestation. It's like, nah, you're screwed, dude. Like you have a destiny. You have to deal with it. Um Sorry, bud. Sorry, bud. Uh and I think that is a really interesting thing to explore and like the this idea of like the way the landscape of that place he is an outsider who comes to this place and has his entire life rewritten by the landscape of this place and his involvement with it and that is like I don't know that feels like deeply gothic to me and I kind of and I'm like it's that is absolutely a story that I feel like I have referenced in the putting together of Unwell in surprising ways. <laughs> yeah, hmm, an outsider who... <laughs> uh-huh. It's weird. Can't imagine anyone who fits that description yep. in any of the Unwell cast. Yep. So anyway, those are those are going to be the two... Those are the two things I wanted to cite as, like, gothic influences. <laughs> no, that's, yeah. that's great shit. Yeah. I love it. I'm just going to sit here and be like, listen, I'm obsessed with Rebecca. You have no idea how many times I've, like, looked <laughs> at Manderley and just... It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I didn't, like, we were, I think, in the middle of writing season two when I decided to read The Haunting of Hill House, because I had never, I had never read it, and the TV show had just come out, and I'm a scaredy cat, and so couldn't watch it. Don't. (laughs) (laughs) I was too scared. No, no, there is, there is an episode in that show where I watched that, it was like, Eleanor, you are never allowed to watch the show because it was almost too much for me. Yeah. Was it episode five? Uh, it's, I mean, it's the car. It's the car scene. It's the car scene, of course. Yeah. I, I trust Jeffrey's uh, judgment on what will be too scary for me. But I was, I decided to read the book because everybody I knew was talking about the TV show all the time. And, uh, man, what a good book. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, I was like angry that no one had like made me read it earlier in my life. Um, <laughs> Shirley Jackson's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, how did I miss that? She's my gothic hero. Like she's she her writing is so affecting. It is so evocative. And I think on more more recently, like that has been a thing that I kind of like my brain continues to chew over that book and like the way that she engages with the landscape of a building particularly yes. is yes. so interesting. Um and also like 
how she manages to make something that scary that so sexy. I'm like, how does she do? How does she do that? I want to. I want. I'm like that. I want to crack that code. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah, I have my copy of The Haunting of Hill House is the one from the set of gothic horror novels that was put together and edited by Guillermo del Toro. Oh, nice. Um, That's cool. Because, <laughs> because why not just take some of my favorite you, you wonderful nerd and just yeah. <laughs> in one place um, boy i you know i will also say that the um this 1963 movie uh was also like one of my formative experiences i didn't i also didn't watch a lot of horror movies growing up but i watched that as a child and was just riveted it's such it's such a beautiful film and uh a frightening film and I think, I, I don't know, I think there's something fascinating about this story in how there are so many different adaptations that have each chosen to do, to kind of pull something interesting out of it, you know, um, misogyny and gaslighting in the 63 film, uh, addiction and mental health and generational trauma in the TV show, um, and bad CGI in the 90s version. Um, How dare you remind me of that? <laughs> Liam Neeson and Owen Wilson. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> God. Anyway, no, it's it's such a it's such an interesting story and it's so, yeah. Oof. So as we talked about, the gothic relies on dread as opposed to horror, right? Dread, the thing that you cannot see and then terror when you're actually looking at the thing. That's the distinction that we're making here between dread and terror. So the gothic relies on dread, which can sometimes also just be the dread of the next casserole that somebody will drop off. <laughs> what, <laughs> what is the dread you feel or have felt living in the Midwest that you brought to the show? Tornado warnings. No, I mean, not specifically, but man, I grew up on the East Coast and moving out to the Midwest, like moving to Chicago. The first time I experienced hail... I like dove under a table. I was so freaked out about it. Um, but like there, like there is just, I don't know. You said that thing about dread and I, we just recently had a tornado warning where I went and like sat in the basement of my apartment building with a complete stranger and her dog. And I was like, this is such a weird experience. <laughs> yeah. This is such a like Midwestern experience um, to be like, I don't know, maybe death is just going to drop from the sky today. That might happen. Yep. Um, but I don't know, let me think about your question a little more seriously. <laughs> yeah, you're fine. No, that's actually, I actually really like that answer, to be frank, because what you've expressed is a dread of the environment that you don't know. Yeah, that's pretty gothic, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, continuing on the theme of the weather, I feel like, um, honestly, both living in Chicago and also in Ohio, there are winters where I have had the moment of realizing like, oh, there are very narrow things keeping me alive right now. You know, a a negative 30 wind chill day, you're walking around in Chicago and suddenly like I'm I'm a person, Eleanor makes fun of me all the time for this. <laughs> I'm a person who um 
isn't isn't tremendously bothered by the cold just because of how like I it's it's not that like I don't get cold it's just that like it's not really a negative experience for me usually but uh being out in those kinds of temperatures for a little bit too long and realizing oh right this this could kill me and despite all of the kind of resources and infrastructure around us in this city, you know, I'm out here and I actually don't have access to a shelter right now. And wow, this could be really bad. Yeah. In one of the first couple of years that I lived in Chicago, we had a blizzard that came through that we all, I think, refer to as the snowpocalypse that basically shut down the entire city for like three days. And the thing about it that was so impactful was that this blizzard came in and dropped like three feet of snow in about eight hours. It happened really fast. And so like I went to work in the morning and around 3 p.m. or 2 p.m. Somebody came around and was like, everybody needs to go home right now. And I didn't listen to them right away. And by the time I got in the train and got, and it took me about, and where I was working and living at the time, it took me almost an hour and a half to get home. And by the time I got on the, like I got on the train and it wasn't snowing. And by the time I got off the train, it was snowing. And it was snowing so hard that I couldn't see the end of the block as I was walking. And, um, and I remember I remember waking up the next morning and it was like beautiful blue skies and like, and there was a little tiny, like two millimeter crack in one of our windows. And there was like three inches of snow on the other side of it. And that was like, it was, a, it was a bonker snowstorm there. It was, it was the kind of storm, like all of Lakeshore drive, which is the highway that runs through Chicago. Everybody just got out of their cars and left. Yeah. It took weeks for them to get all the cars cleared. There are amazing photos of, of city buses abandoned, full of snow. Yeah. Um, I was actually, I so I, during that storm, was working down in Hyde Park on the south side at the museum and uh, living out on the west side. And we were, we were both young and had terrible commutes. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like Eleanor said, they 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 came around. They said, "Hey, we're shutting down the museum early. Get home as fast as you can." And a friend of mine said, "Okay, like jump in my car. Uh, I'll drop everyone off." And we were we were on Lakeshore Drive as the storm was getting intense, and she misheard one of us and got off at a wrong turn, and that was pretty much all that kept us from being stuck out there on Lakeshore Drive. It was it was bonkers. Wow. Yeah, it is it is a land of dramatic weather. Yeah, like, Jesus. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, I grew up in Boston and so like I've I, I grew up with hurricanes. It's not like there isn't dramatic weather in other places, but there's a thing about the Midwest that is um where you know the weather can be really dramatic and and can and can show up very quickly like i think that's the thing about i i'm not used to living it like i grew up in a place that isn't this flat and and being in a place where the weather can move across the land this fast is a thing that has been a really different environmental experience in a way that's that's cool 
and kind of scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, I I visited my grandmother in southern Illinois every summer for most of my life. And uh, for one one thing, I'm so glad that you went with something that wasn't corn. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I have enough corn nightmares. Her her house is literally across the street from a cornfield. And let me tell you, all of the corn horror stories, I've heard them all. Have I watched <laughs> Children of the Corn? Absolutely not. No. But yeah, it, it was definitely like a place where, like I grew up, I also grew up with hurricanes. And with hurricanes, you can prep for them. Yeah. And yeah. my mother grew up in the Midwest. And so she had to, once I was old enough to understand what was going on, and I wasn't like constantly at her hip all the time when I was there, uh, she had to explain to me, okay, if I say you need to get into the basement, you need to get into the basement as soon as I say it. Yeah. Because it's not like a hurricane. And I, uh, from from then on, like, <clears throat> hurricanes ter- scare me, especially considering, you know, Maria. Um, mm-hmm. Tornadoes are dread to me because I have yeah. actually never experienced a tornado. Um, but I have family who have experienced tornadoes and I have the information of what tornadoes can do and how fast they are. Mm-hmm. And I got to agree with you. The fact that they, that things can move that fucking fast, it's just, it's not natural. Yeah. I mean, and like, uh, so we had a, we had a not quite tornado that came through the Chicago area two summers ago. Um, it didn't turn into a tornado, but we had like a really, really dramatic, um, windstorm that like could have could have turned into a tornado. And my I my very dear friend and her kid who's my goddaughter, um they had a story my goddaughter was like 3 at the time and they had a story about how the kid and dad are out in the backyard and mom is out on the front porch and the difference in weather between those two places was so dramatic that the, the the folks in the backyard did not realize what was happening. Wow. And that that is how fast the weather was moving. That like... No, thanks. Yeah, that like my friend ran through the house and like picked the kid up without explaining anything and ran back inside. And my friend, her dad, the dad was like, what did you just... I don't understand what just happened. Yeah. No, thanks. Yeah. yeah, don't like that. Yeah. No, it's kind of terrifying. Absolutely not. Well, I guess that explains a lot of things about Man <laughs> I mean, <laughs> w- one of the things in my life that helped inspire the story of Unwell, um, I mean, I've talked in the past about how uh, Mount Absalom is loosely based on both Gambier and Mount Vernon, um, two towns in Knox County, Ohio, uh, where I went to undergrad and then later lived and and taught for a while. But um, when I was back teaching at Kenyon in in Gambier, um, I was living in Chicago and teaching one day a week on campus. And because I was young and stupid, what I decided to do was take a megabus back and forth every week from Chicago to Gambier. You know, uh, I come in on a Wednesday morning, spend the week until the next Wednesday there, and then go back to Chicago and spend six days and kind of flip flop back and forth. So I took a lot of overnight megabuses. It was like, you know, spend five bucks on a bus ticket and just go. But it was during the winter. And, um, you know, Knox County. This is the part I was worried about. <laughs> yeah. Knox County is not a huge place. Um Gambier has what like three or four thousand people in it, and 
there was a week where I needed to drive back to Columbus and the county ran out of gas because they couldn't get the trucks in to deliver gas and it all got bought up and I, and we were literally snowed in. Can, um, we, can we try on Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Long Winter as a gothic story? <laughs> <laughs> That's what that sounds like. Okay, keep going. Yeah, it's, it's one of those moments where you're like, I am so used to not having to worry about like between living in a city and always kind of having access to public transportation one way or the other. And then like, you know, having a car out in the countryside and being like, what do you mean? I can't, I can't get out of here safely. Uh, it was really a bizarre experience. And it, it, it started this thing cranking in my head of, uh, of telling the story about a, a town that gets isolated. Um, and, and there's an interesting way in which, that ended up dropping out of the story of Unwell. You know, you can leave Mount Vernon, not Mount Vernon, uh, Mount Absalom. Oof. Uh, Sorry to everyone at Mount Vernon. Yeah. <laughs> you can leave Mount Absalom at any time you want, but there are so many haunted house stories, so many of these kinds of stories that are, we are trapped in this place. Um you know, now often like, oh, we've sunk all of our retirement or all of our money into this house and we can't leave. And I I don't know, those stories are fine, but I didn't want to tell another one of those. And so it became, how do we tell a story about a place that you don't want to leave, even if maybe you should? Wes, we're looking at you! <laughs> <laughs> I do want to talk about since you're talking about you know how this story started percolating is that um, sound is a particularly interesting medium to convey the gothic and it's about the sound design but it's also about so much more right what part of unwell sound was designed for this feeling of dread especially in terms of things that people don't usually think about as being part of sound well Okay, I kind of want to start with like a general thought I have about audio, like audio fiction and telling stories in audio. Because um, this is a, this is a like a thing I've been talking about with a bunch of people lately, and then we can talk. And then Jeffrey, I might punt to you to <laughs> talk more specifically. I, one of the things that I really love about audio storytelling is the way in which you get to play with what is quote unquote seen and unseen in different ways than you do in a visual storytelling space that your writers and your sound designer get to collaborate in this really interesting way to decide what is present and what's not. And usually when I'm trying to explain this to people, like the, my, the first thing I reach for is like jokes. <laughs> it's like you get to decide, you can do this thing where you can like decide to not mention something is there and then introduce it later. And the joke is like, oh, that was always true. So like my favorite, my favorite example of this is that there's an episode uh, where Lily and Marisol are talking to each other about their like crushes on famous people. And then they get a phone call and they have the whole phone call. And at the end, they hang up the phone call and they go, well, I guess we have to go do that thing. And Marisol goes, where did you put my underwear? And you have to, you know, back 
back channel in your brain, oh, they this is postcoital. Like this this whole scene that I've just listened to, right? Okay. Um but I think that that aspect of audio storytelling is a thing that is really effective for dread and for building fear in these ways that I, I really love the sort of aspects of that dread in our story that is like, uh, this feels weird, but I, I can't put my finger on why. So I'm just going to pretend that it's fine. I'm going to like, I'm going to not name it. I'm going to assume it's fine and move on. And so we're talking about you, Abby. <laughs> I feel like we're talking about a lot of them. That's um, and so that thing of like being able to place into the story stuff that is subtle and either named or not named that then the listener is like, is that, is that important? I feel like that's important. But I can't, but you haven't named it yet, so I don't know for sure. And I love that. I love playing with those things. Um, yeah, I don't know. Jeffrey, I think I'm going to punt to you to get more specific. Yeah. Um, I think the ability to let things disappear if they're not being actively discussed at a moment is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for this kind of dread. And, and and plays into the stuff that you were we were talking about there, Eleanor. Um, and it has the added benefit of when it is re-revealed, even though the audience member has forgotten about it, they feel like, oh, I should have been seeing that the whole time. And and so it really compounds it. Another thing that I feel like we've put a lot of effort into is building in the sound design of Unwell a really clear set of rules about what reality sounds like. Absolutely. So that then when we break it, it's very clear and it can be unsettling in a way where you're like, reality feels broken right now. And it's a little hard to put your finger on why, but it, it there is a why. And the why is because we've, our sound design team has a really specific, you know, way that reality sounds so that then when it's not reality, you're like, what is happening? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons we're so precise and so exhaustive with our sound design. You know, we go a long way towards creating a really crunchy realism and not, not a realism of, oh, everything is being recorded by, uh, tape recorders in every scene, but like it, we want you to feel like you are there in the house in the scene. And like Eleanor said, when we break it, it's it's sometimes not immediately obvious. You know, we are humans often have much more acute threat detection systems with their eyes, um, and so you know, you are constantly gathering lots of information with your ears, but they're not as foregrounded for your brain often. And so by slipping in that like, uh-oh, that door when you entered this room was on the left side and we haven't spun the the angle at all. And now they're going out through the same door, but it's on the right. Like, that that will mess with your head in very subtle ways. Okay, so but like I think I want to I want to pull two examples 
Because I think there's a thing, Ellie, that you're getting at that there's things that we do in the story that build dread that are based in like the crunchy realism in the sound design. And then there's things we do that build fear and dread that are about breaking the reality. And I think we do both. So let's see if I can pull this off. I'm going to pull two examples from the same episode. So in episode, it's one six storm where they go down into the basement the first time. I love this episode. I'm obsessed with this episode. It's a great, it's a great episode. It's also, it's also the episode where Rudy appears for the first time. If people are trying to like, remember what, you know, context. Um, so they go, I'll go down to the basement because there's a tornado warning and there's this huge thunderstorm going on outside. And there is all of this um, sort of like heightened tension that happens early in the episode around like trying to find the radio and it's way up on a shelf and then something falls and Dot scratches her face. And like all of that is building tension, right? And creating this sort of like fear that is really reality based. And then also at the end of the episode, there's a thing that happens that I just, I, I love. It's so weird. Um, right at the end of the episode, they're still sitting in the basement and it sort of trails off as they're listening to the radio and the radio changes and we get this radio report in German that it's very like out of sync with everything else that has been on the radio previously. And that is a moment that is like, it, it's based in reality as the reality of our show works, right? Like a radio signal is coming out of the radio. Like that is a real thing that is happening, but it's a weird thing that's happening. And it's kind of fear engaging because it, it doesn't make sense, even though it's based in reality. That is different than like the scene in that same episode where they go into the, you know, bowels of the basement and suddenly the room is too big. And they kind of lose Lily on the other side of this room and it doesn't make any sense. Like the, the architecture of the space changes in a way that you're like, this is not based in reality. And it can't, it doesn't feel real because the like the the actual like you know the house is doing something weird and we can't yeah. explain why it's Fenwood's first house of leaves moment <laughs> yes yes and it's two very different things that I think are both supported in really fun and interesting ways by the audio world and the way that that can like sneak into your brain and go like that's not right so. A well-designed fiction podcast will understand how to make sound the star instead of relying on visual cues because it's it's a podcast. It's based on audio. You should be focusing on making audio the center of the thing. Um, the supernatural here throughout the show relies on things like the radio, recorded songs, water through a storm drain, Abby's trusty field recorder, in order to convey the supernatural's like thoughts and their warnings and things like that. Talk to me about the dichotomy between the power of sound to convey messages, but also its weakness as something more ephemeral that can be ignored or forgotten. Ooh, Ellie, what a question. <laughs> sound as ephemeral. Ooh. So sound has an ephemeral quality that's different than like being able to take a picture of something. 
But it also means that, like, the relationship between sound and memory is different. And that's a really big theme in our show as well. This idea of, like, I don't know if you've noticed, but there's a lot about memory in, in Unwell. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, because So, you know, there's this thing about memory that is, like, how do you remember that a thing happened? Like, and and uh, not to oversimplify, but but my understanding is that you remember that something happened because you can tell the story of what happened. And every time you tell that story, you are rewriting and recreating that memory. So when you hear something, if you can't, if you can't tell the story of what it meant, then that is the most ephemeral. You know, if a flock of birds goes by and it doesn't have meaning, you won't remember it. Um, if the radiator makes weird noises and it's not significant, you won't remember that it happened. And so I think, like, there's an interesting um, way that all overlaps here, right? That, like, you only remember things that have meaning, really. So you have to notice them in order for them to have meaning. And there are lots of things that are happening in our story that either the characters are noticing kind of for the first time and giving them meaning, new meaning. I mean, that's the whole like, why is this night different than every other night? Like, why are we bothering to tell the story of Men Absalom today as opposed to some other time? Like, a lot of times I think in our story, our characters are giving the thing meaning for the first time. And so it may have happened many times before and not had the same, not been noticed or engaged with in the same way. Um, or there are lots of places where I feel like we see characters who've engaged with something over and over and over again, and now they're engaging with it differently and finding new meaning in a thing like the radiator suddenly. And that that is what creates meaning which is what's connected to whether or not you actually remember that the thing happened. You know what my my favorite example of that might be? Hmm. And and since this interview will have spoilers through, you know, season three, some season four, so we can talk about this now. The fact that for what the first two, three, some of three seasons, um, you think the title of the podcast is about Dot. And turns out, yeah. It's a big pun. Oh, come on, Jeffrey. <laughs> <laughs> I saw where this was going, and I'm just sitting here like... Uh-huh. <laughs> because, yes, the, it, it is about Dot's Alzheimer's, uh, which a careful listener may say, oh, yeah, I, I clocked that early on. But, like, it is confirmed, revealed at the end of season one. You're like, ah, oh, that's why it's called Unwell. And no, actually, it's because... When is a well not a well? Um, when it's an unwell. Okay, somebody wrote that into a first draft script and we made them take it out. No, we like, didn't. It made it all the way. No, seriously? It did, yeah. I swear to God, I thought we made them cut that. Well, <laughs> it got snuck back in. Uh, no, I think Rudy says, when is a well not a well? Okay, um, but there was a draft of the script where he actually said. Oh, yeah. Like we, where he, he didn't, finished the thought. Yeah. No, that yeah. did not make like it. somebody actually said, "Oh, an unwell," and I was like, "Nope, gotta cut that." Not <laughs> well, and 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 I kind of want to 
veer off on a tangent there, um, in especially in talking about ephemeralness, um, because Unwell is very much a show. It is is show designed and crafted certainly to be interesting and exciting the first time you listen to it. But we wanted to build something that would really reward someone who wanted to go and listen to it three, five, ten times <laughs> to dig deep into does it. That, does that does that resonate for you, Ellie? <laughs> Maybe a little. No, not me, certainly. We wanted to put ideas in in the first episodes in the first season that would only only kind of bear fruit when you had listened to all five seasons and then gone back and started at the beginning and said oh that's and I, and I love art like that not just and I think it's not just about like big reveals and surprises it's about things that take on different flavors when you're watching it or listening to it or experiencing it again and and for me that's that's a thing that's so exciting about audio fiction i it it's funny because sound is ephemeral but like audio fiction is not it is a sound art that is is um locked down and is there and for better or for worse is you know it's going to be around uh as long as these rss feeds are i <laughs> I mean, I, I know, I know there are lots of um, variances, and we could go into archiving later. But you know, I come from my artistic background is in live theater performance and live music performance. Yeah, same. Yeah, both Jeffrey and I are theater artists, and the idea of like, I'm like, this is so much less ephemeral than what I used to do. <laughs> yeah, and so we are used to shows that exist for you know six weeks. Or, you know, when when playing with bands, you know, yeah, I'll play the same songs over and over again, but there is no performance. You know, I have my musical background is often in either experimental music or in Irish folk music um, and various punk rock adaptations thereof. And so even when I am playing, you know, the nine millionth time I've played Tell Me Ma or something like that. Um, it's going to be different every time, and it's going to be a completely new song, even if it's just those same three chords that I've played on every single song. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know. It's it's. I think um, there is something really exciting about how the art is not ephemeral. I, I, I'm going to completely reverse course and say the experience, both because you know you are learning something new and and the the piece is going to present something to, new to you each time but like audio fiction because it is only engaging your ears and depending on where you're listening to you know there is also other sonic stuff coming in each time you experience a piece of audio fiction is going to be completely different you know whether i listen to all of the black tapes while walking at you know 11 through um one of my partner's neighborhood like coming home from her house and like uh, on a, a an abandoned Chicago street and I like saved episodes just for my nighttime walks and like that experience is completely different from 
listening to it, you know, in uh, the safety of your apartment. Um, we recorded um, a lot of Our Fair City in a studio that we built in the basement of a decommissioned polling station and power plant from Chicago's railcar system uh, when they used to have uh, trolleys. And to be fair, I just want to say that makes it sound a lot sexier than it was. It was just a big industrial building with super, super giant concrete walls. Yeah. It was a weird building. <laughs> it was very weird. It uh, it had become a circus gym upstairs, and we had built out this studio in the basement. And you had to, like, shut off the lights and then run through this basement to get to the doors in the dark. And so I'm listening to, you know, the, the, the Upside Down Face episode of The Black Tapes as I shut out the lights and scamper, you know, from pool of light to pool of light in this industrial basement. It was one of the scariest experiences of my life. Anyway, <laughs> I'll never recapture that experience. I'll have lots of other experiences, but hearing that for the first time in that environment is is completely unlike anything. I don't know. It's a participatory medium. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to folklore and legends, which are deeply integral to Unwell's structure and thematic plot, uh, in case no one has noticed somehow. <laughs> right? Characters are associated with folktales like Lily with the woodcutter's daughter and, and Rudy, unfortunately, with the, the wolf and the collie. How did you all go about designing and writing Mount Absalom's folklore? Uh, mostly Jim did it. Jim and Bilal. I'm, I'm, I'm half joking, but I think... I think the answer here is mostly just going to be I'm going to like do some um, gushing about how great our writers are. Mm -hmm. um, so Jim McDaniel is an incredibly talented writer and wrote both the very first episode, Homecoming, and the very last episode of season one, Lost in the Woods. And so those two episodes both very much use the um that girl in the woods the woodcutter story yeah the woodcutter story they feel like a pair like when you listen to the first one and you listen to the second one it feels like a pair and it's just so satisfying that is intentional and jim wrote both of those um and so i i want to start by crediting jim with i think kind of kicking that off as a motif amongst the team and sort of like I don't know, almost like issuing as a challenge, like this is a thing I want to do. I want to I want to play in this space. I and then kind of stepping up to that challenge, we've seen the other writers do really fun things, but specifically you're right, Jeffrey, I think Bilal has also written a lot in that modality in a different kind of way. So you referenced the the Kali and the Wolf story. That's one that Bilal wrote and that is very much a thing that I think has just evolved organically as the writing team that we have developed a language together and sort of set up in collaboration with each other what the voice of these different characters are. You know, so the way that Silas tells a story is really different than the way Rudy tells a story or Dot tells a story or Marisol tells a story. But we have a lot of characters in our show who tell stories and who use the stories they tell as part of how they explain the world around them. And 
that's a thing that I've cut. Like you, you, you came at it from like a folklore standpoint, but I'll say one of the things that I really love about the show, the way the show is structured is that, you know, we as a team have a set of like internal rules about like, here's how the supernatural works. Um, the characters don't know that. Like we as a team know, <laughs> right? Like our characters don't know what's happening any more than the listener does. And the way that we watch these different characters try to grab onto something that makes sense is how they tell stories about it and the metaphors that they use to try and capture this thing that is really hard to pin down. And I love, I just, that that's a thing about the, like, the way the show has evolved that I just really love. This, like, you know, that, like, Nora talks about the echoes and you have the way Marisol talks about, like, the Voyager and music and, like, and those kinds of things. You have the way Dot engages with the house and, like, all of these are kind of people grasping for explanations for things that are impossible to explain. And I mean, that's kind of what folklore is, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and I think, I don't know, I also, I want to, yeah, continue to just rave about this team of writers and how, how they build off of each other. Uh, Because I think, I think we also see, we see each of them in different ways, Building out, yeah, the the collective folklore and 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 um, livedness of the world of Mount Absalom. I feel like the music that Jess Best wrote for uh, the Halloween episode, for instance, like it throughout that episode, we see not just like an event that has been going on for years and very clearly has you know rituals that are performed each time and and we see we see both like you know rituals that people think have mystical significance happen in the show and also rituals that have cultural significance the evil laugh contest that clearly happens every single halloween the the music the way that like best created these songs that just like really anchor the fact that this is this is a town that has existed not just in you know a mythic past but also in the 50s and in the 30s and and we we get through these little cultural artifacts oh this is how the people of that time responded to mount absalom and uh, just buha the creation of uh, Great Green Mother, who we adore, the song happens in the Celery Festival. And like, uh, so the piece of writing that I knew Jess Buha through before she came to work with the song on Well is this piece that I love. And it's, it's, there's a version of it online. You should all go listen to it. It's called, uh oh, Alabama Mermaid. Alabama Mermaid. Yeah. It is a, piece uh, that was written for the Death Scribe Festival here in Chicago, uh, which was a a competition of 10-minute horror radio plays. And it is a musical about mermaids who are stealing the children of, you know, in, in Alabama. 
It's an incredible piece. Absolutely need to listen to this. Okay. Yeah. It's incredible. I had I had the the incredible fortune actually to get to perform it um when I toured with Deathscribe in to Miami. And uh it's it's also worth saying that the the larger context of it is is Alabama Mermaid is slang for alligators. And so it is a it is an exploration of of grief and of the stories. I don't know. I this is me putting this on it, but I feel like it 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 like it really accesses this thing about losing a child and and the stories we tell ourselves. But it has a lot of her writing has that mythic weight. Yeah, it's um, true. In this really wonderful way. Yeah. So as we're recording this. We are very, very deep into writing season five, which will be the final season of the show. Um, we just last week had the writers meeting where we read the very first draft of the end of the series, which woof. Did everybody cry? Yes. Uh, and so I'm going to I'm like thinking about this idea of the of like folklore and the mythic and I I'm, I'm going to, tr- I'm like, I want to like share part of this thought that I'm having without getting too deep into it because we're not to this part of the story yet. But I also think one of the things that we've been talking about and thinking a lot about as we write season five is what does it mean to write new stories, like new folk tales, so to speak, about a place. And if the Gothic is all rooted in this idea of like, the destiny you're stuck with and the way in which like your fate is moted out and, and you cannot change it. What does it mean then to tell a story where we say that's not true? You aren't predestined. You do, you can change the future. Um, And what does it sound like to tell new stories and to try and tell stories that can set the future on a different path? Because I think that's like, that feels like a very meta thing for us as a team, both like, how do we tell this story unwell in a way that is about trying to set a path towards a different kind of future, but also like inside of our story, what does it mean for our characters to try and like tell different kinds of stories that get us somewhere different than we've been before? I, I feel like a a piece of, and I, I don't think this is a spoiler for the full series, but like we came into this and one of the things we said is we don't want to tell a chosen one story. Yeah. We wanted to tell a story where people um, could affect the world, but not a story where there is um, something supernaturally important about one person. Or even a group of people. Which is a really interesting thing, I think, for us, because, right, like, that is a gothic theme. And to kind of, like, wrestle with that through this whole story and go, like, God, it keeps showing up. You keep having moments where you're like, oh, no, do we have a chosen one? And then we go, how do we unwind that? Like, what what choices do we make inside this story to try and um, push against what feels like it's inevitable? Yeah, one of the things that when I was thinking, as I was thinking about this, and there's a lot of other gothic tropes, let's say, that you purposefully reject, Yeah. right? So this one is very clear when you listen to the whole thing, like, in a row, you're like, oh, this is just constantly, like, working on the idea of, like, that there's, like, this special person, and it keeps switching, like, who is this special person? 
And then, like, on, like, like you said, unraveling that and just going, like, nope, 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 nope. Kind of like that octopus on the ground, <laughs> on the ground of the ocean. Nope. But one of the other things is also in the rejection of the hereditary. Mm. So I mentioned, you know, gothic horror is concerned with, like, right, the predestined, you can't escape your destiny, and also heavily concerned with the past, right? Yeah. Gothic horror is deeply concerned with ancestry, which is a big thing in Unwell, um, but in particular with hereditary things that are passed down in the bloodline. And when I listened to Unwell, specifically for this interview, one of the things that I noticed was this rejection of, whether it was purposeful or not, this rejection of this particular concern of hereditary things passed down in the bloodline. Because Lily never talks about being afraid of having a genetic marker for Alzheimer's. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I thought you were going to go somewhere else at the end of that. That's fair. Yeah. I legitimately have never thought about that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like that's, that's a, an interesting thing about maybe also Alzheimer's specifically because it is, I mean, Dot in particular, and, and I think this is, this is a fascinating thing about uh, how we view age. You know, a thing we sometimes hear in 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 negative reviews is dot sounds too young and you know we say y'all like a this is early onset alzheimer's like dot is young yeah is young like dot's only 62 it's what it said they, yeah. they uh-huh. age her like her age is like 62 is not old well and and a, a thing i have noticed is that like there is so little room for especially femme characters to be you know like to be 62 to be like mm-hmm. middle-aged like people people listen to that are like well she's a mother of an adult child so she must be a, so therefore she's a ancient crone. yeah she must be you know she's got to sound like well, this. yeah why isn't she talking <laughs> like you know and it's like no like whereas i think i think the reality is like we wanted to tell a story that felt like it was reflective of the relationship that we have with our parents. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a hard thing to do, but like, I'm like that, that's the relationship I have with my parents. I'm like, they are other grownups. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I, so it's interesting. I feel like your whole, your whole buildup about hereditary markers. I was like, man, there are a lot there are a lot of choices we have made really, really specifically and like talked about in the writer's room and as a team and like stuff that we've done really specifically to try and steer out of that curve. Yes, I can tell. <laughs> the not worrying about will I get Alzheimer's? I literally, we've never, I've never <laughs> thought about it. You know yeah. what? That's fine. Because I think that, because <laughs> the thing is that, like, it's true. Like, you can hear this and you can hear this, like, conversations that have clearly happened about not worrying about this, like, hereditary fear of disease, right? Because this is something that in the Gothic is rooted very deeply in racism and ableism. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, we didn't write the first seat. We didn't cast the show until after we wrote the first season. So Lily being biracial is a choice that came a little bit later in the putting the story together um, and, and evolved out of the casting and 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 uh, Clarissa being exactly the right person to play this role. And I think 
we were interested in steering away from the hereditary curve for a lot of reasons, but the racism reason is definitely one of them. Yeah. <laughs> but like, we only reveal this fact pretty late in the story. This is a thing that comes up in season four. But we as a team all made the internal choice that Dot was adopted pretty early on as part of how we were going to engage with this because we felt like it was important to us that Lily, Lily's relationship with the town is a real choice. Yeah. That she has a real choice about whether or not to stay or leave. And in order for that to be true, we felt like um, whatever this thing is that's happening it may feel hereditary, but it's not actually hereditary. Like it's not like that's not the actual rules of how this game is being played. And so we kind of set up for ourselves a couple of like, I don't know, I guess stop gaps that were like, okay, well, we all understand that it's not hereditary because that's adopted. Like, she has a relationship with this place and she ha and this is her family home, but it's not genetic and it's not about the bloodline. And there's ways in which we've played with Spike's relationship with the town that were very specifically written to kind of steer out of that curve too. Yeah, so like, yes, you're absolutely right. It's a thing that we were like, I don't know. I feel like there are mo there are definitely moments where we are like playing with something in the story and we go, that's a trope that we want to we want to we want to steer out of the curve, not into the curve. Like, yeah. we want to see that it's there and like and 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 engage with it, but steer yeah, like steer out of it in a way that allows us to um engage with it and think about it but not rely on the rely trope. on it or ultimately reject it. Yeah. Depending yeah. on what you're talking about, yeah. Uh, I love that. Thanks. So good. <laughs> Minor note, uh, in the, like, folklore thing, one of my favorite things to have noticed while I was listening to the show is um, we hear the phrase, the owl eye, from Lily, giving the owl eye, and then later you get the folklore story about the witch turning the salesman into a fucking owl. And I'm just kind of like, Yes! My linguistics brain is activated. <laughs> I mean, a, a thing we have each season, I mean, we have meetings where we just look at it and say, okay, like, what things have we reused? What do we, like, okay, I see we're, we're referencing a thing here. Can we tie that reference to something that happened earlier? Yeah. It's one of my favorite things to do in a writer's meeting, to be like, this joke is fun, but could you instead make it a callback to this thing that happened two seasons ago? Yeah. Um, and I feel like I have a little mental list of like jokes that happened in the first two seasons that I'm like, I want to use that again. And so I'll just say as like a, like, I'll just say my top thing that got into, that's in season one that I want to find a way to bring back is the fact that Abby wants ground penetrating radar. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> and so, like, I have a little list in my head like that of things that in the writer's room I'm kind of constantly going like, but what if? <laughs> what if we gave Abby ground penetrating this radar this This moment time? here, is this the moment where Abby goes, you know, if I had that ground penetrating radar, I could solve this. Yeah. You know, like, that kind of thing. Um, and I think, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's totally a game that I think we as a team are kind of constantly playing. Yep. 
We'll be back with part two of this interview later in the year. Thanks for listening. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. In the alley, the scent is stronger, overpowering. As I watch, the overhead lamps flicker and wink out one by one. God damn it. No. The girl appears briefly under the last streetlight, the headphones snug against her ears, the Walkman clasped to her hip. She's oblivious as she walks, lost in her own world. Hey, stop! I need to talk to you! Then she's swallowed up by the darkness again. Helen! Wait a second! It strikes her in the gloom so fast she barely has time to scream. She falls into the edge of the lamplight and lies there, bleeding, motionless. The man's skin is scaly, flaking, and there are patches of soot on his cheeks. He stares at me with eyes like midnight. Eyes that are devoid of remorse, devoid of humanity. He's one of them. I turn and run, and I don't look back. The Road of Shadows, a new mystery and suspense audio drama by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Listen now at theroadofshadows.com. Thank you.